0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us and teach us what you would have us to learn from these psalms. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 131, a song of degrees of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned from his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. So we want to look at this and David's prayer. First off is, Lord, my heart, my inner being is not haughty, is not exalted, not, not trying to be greater than he thinks, nor my eyes lofty, which is the same thing. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters, and this literally is, uh, again, haughty, high, and or in things too deep for me, or that means difficult. And he says basically he's being humble, which, for David, that is quite a statement. This was obviously before his major sin with Bathsheba, which humbled him as well. David started out as a very humble man and got a little bit rig for his britches toward the middle of it and then was humbled again by God's grace and mercy. And, you know, we think about this, you know, God's grace and mercy will bring us to a humbled place if we really, truly understand it. To realize that we deserve nothing but punishment, nothing but, you know, hard time from God, and yet he gives us great blessings. It should give us a real humble attitude. Should not lead us, as we said this morning, to, to desire to sin. Let me sin so God can give me lots more grace. He's given us so much grace, we, we don't need to sin anymore for the grace. And he wants to give us grace. And that's the amazing thing, is that he wants to give us grace and mercy. And David said, you know, God, I'm, I'm, I'm very humbled. I'm not, not being haughty. I'm not being, being exalting myself. I'm not giving over to things I can't understand. And, you know, sometimes we do a lot of this trying to figure out things that are too difficult for us to understand. You know, sometimes when we struggle with scriptures, you know, and my statement whenever I teach the Trinity is we're going to teach you everything the Bible says about the Trinity and you're not going to understand the Trinity any better when we get done than you did before. All we can do is accept it on faith. And there are people that will spend inordinate amounts of time trying to understand things that we just really can't understand. And and that's not saying we shouldn't give any thought to it but you know we're not going to understand the trinity. We're not going to understand that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. It just makes no sense. All we can do is accept it by faith. We can't you know we can't understand why God even loves us enough to die for us. Because again, that's something that is just way too far above us. And it amazes me that God created man knowing that we were going to sin, knowing that he was going to have to die to To buy us back, and yet he created man. It's just something that is just unbelievable to me and unfathomable. And every once in a while, I'll think about it, but I don't think about it for long because it's just something I go, okay, God, it just makes no sense, but you did it. You know, to see the things that God does sometimes for us is pretty amazing. And David's saying, you know, I've been raised up, I've been exalted, but I'm not, I have a proper attitude about myself and a proper attitude about ourselves is not that you know if you're a good teacher or a good you know whatever it might be that you are it doesn't say well I'm worthless at, at that job you know it's just not exalting yourself beyond where you're at you know to say that you're not good at something is not is not just uh, is not righteous or holy if you're good at it now to pretend you're good at something that you're not is a problem but you know if somebody is a good singer and people say, thank you for using your talent for God. And, you know, they can't go, oh, it's all God. You know, and I've heard this over and over. It's all God. Don't, you know, don't praise me. You know, you've got the talent. Accept it with the grace that it was given to and acknowledge that you are good at what you're doing and acknowledge that it's also God that uses it. Because when we teach, when we sing, when we serve, and God is in it, it is a powerful thing when God is in our, in our service. Because he takes whatever gift he's given us, and then he intensifies that gift and makes it even greater than it was when we started. And we want to keep this in mind. God uses people, and he will use their gifts. And when he uses that gift, he'll give them greater gifts within that area. And we just want to say, David understood this. You are, you are the one that is everything, God. Then he goes in verse 2, surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned from his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. In this one, I had a first thought on this one, and I, you know, and I went to the commentaries to look it up, and the first commentary didn't say anything about what I had come up with. And I'm going, okay, the second commentary matched, you know, A third commentary matched what I had come up with, so we're going to go with what I came up with, <laughs> what God showed me in the first place. Uh, You know, this whole idea of surely I have behaved and quieted myself. This word for behave, uh, behave means to smooth, make level. He says, I have made level my life and I have quieted myself. How many times do we get in trouble because we have way too high of highs and way too low of lows and, you know, go way up, way down, And, you know, I know that's human nature and everything, but, you know, there is a point where we need to kind of smooth those out a little bit because I've seen people go way too high in all directions. And I've been there. I've gone to spiritual, you know, activities and gotten real high and ready to go. And, you know, the worst thing about going really high up for God is it's a long ways just to get back to where you were supposed to be. And you usually... Go way too far below where you're supposed to be and you have to come back up. And David says, I have made smooth things. I have you know, which for David, if we've been reading the Psalms long enough to know that this is not really a true statement for David. David was really high and really low, and that was the way he was. When he was on fire, he was really on fire. They probably he bad at the Probably. That's what, most, that's what most pastors say, that clinically he would be declared manic-depressant, you know, bipolar. Uh, possibly bipolar. But, well, bipolar is manic-depressant. But you know, his highs were high and his lows were low. And we see these in all of these psalms that he goes through. But you know, he knew that God was also his strength to bring him back to where he was supposed to be. Whenever he focused on God, and we, saw that, and we see it in so many of the, of the psalms, he starts out really low and ends up praising God. Or he starts out overly high and comes back down to God. So in one sense, yes, he smoothed it out. How does he smooth it out? Because he recognizes God is his everything. You now, the more we realize that God is everything in our life, the easier life will be for us. And then he says, as a child that is weaned from his mother, my, my soul is even as a weaned child. And we think about this. The biggest question is, what is David saying that he's been weaned from? I, first when I read that, thought of that he was weaned from the world and the flesh. Away from the, wean, the, the world and the flesh and pulled away and started growing spiritually. And that's where I'm going to stick with. I really believe that he's saying that the lust of the world, the desires of the world, was in his infancy and he was desiring them. And then as he went in, he was weaned from the world and put on spiritual food. And, you know, we think about this. A, a child you know, that wants something, how does a child get what they want? They scream <laughs> and holler and cry until they get what they want, especially one who is of nursing age <laughs> to be weaned. They cry when they want and they need their mother for everything. And, you know, God is trying to get us to depend on him. But at the same time, he wants us to be able to feed ourselves. And that's what Peter says in in the book. He says, you know, you desire milk, but you need to get on to heavier stuff. Paul said the same thing. I want to give you deeper truth, but you're still drinking the bottle. You know, you're drinking milk. You need to be ready to go to the next level. And God's purpose with us is to train us to be more and more dependent upon him and less dependent on this world, but also be less dependent upon even the teachers that we deal with. And it's important that we have teachers. It's important that we have the word, but at some point we need to be able to feed ourselves spiritually as well. And David's saying, I have been weaned. I've been weaned. I'm like the, my, I'm like the child that has been weaned from its mother milk, mother's milk, and my soul is, even as the weaned child, he's, he's more dependent upon God and growing on his own. And so I looked at this. This is what I've come up with. Uh, many of them, you know, many of them had some really weird things. I and mean, when I'm going to get into it. It was just kind of something strange. And I, and I was thinking, even as I was studying that, what does it mean to have a child that's been weaned from the breast? You know, that child is growing up, growing up, being more independent. And at first, I'm sure the child does not like to be weaned. You know, it's used to getting its food nice and easy and not having to feed themselves. And this is something that I see even in many Christians. Many Christians don't want to grow to be able to feed themselves. They want that bottle fe- feeding. Don't, don't ask me to go read myself. Don't ask me to go study my, for myself. You know, give me, give me my bottle, <laughs> give me that bottle, and you, you even hold the bottle. I don't even want to hold the bottle. You know, and this is something we see with our, you know, kids as they grow up. Eventually, they start holding their own bottle and and feeding themselves. And that's what God is asking us as Christians to be able to feed yourself spiritually, grow up. And we said this. You know, many people are as spiritual Christians you know, been saved for decades and still needing a bottle feeding from people to, to get by. And if we had a real child that was decades old needing to be bottle fed and, and their diapers changed, we know that there would be a problem. Matter of fact, you'd probably be child, charged with child abuse for if you had that situation. And yet we get so many people spiritually that are still sucking on that bottle, Needing their diapers changed and cannot grow for God because they just will not put the effort in to feed themselves. And that's kind of a sad place. It really is a sad place. It's one thing if you're a new Christian and need it. Need, need it. But when you've been a Christian for a long time, you know, the pastors are going to love you. They're going to give you the feeding that you need. But at the same time, they're going to grow up. <laughs> they want you to grow up because God wants you to grow up. You know? Peter said it, Paul said it, you know, all these guys keep saying, grow up, be able to feed yourself, study, to show yourself a workman approved, you know, rightly handling the word of God, very important for us. And this is what he said about the weaned child that, that he goes, I want them to be able to take care of themselves. He goes, I'm, I'm growing. And then he goes, let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Let Israel hope, wait on the Lord. How many times do we as Christians get ahead of God? You know, God says, wait. And we say, for how long? He says, until you tell you to go. And after about five seconds or so, we're ready to go do it ourselves. Because God, you're just going too slow. You know, God, you are just too slow. You're not doing it in the time that I think it's important to do. We've all done that. We've all been there that God is not fast enough for us. And it also ends up that we make mistakes and do things wrong when we get ahead of God. Every single time when we say, God, you're just not going fast enough. I'm going to do this on my own. We'll regret it. And yet we tend to do this. And sometimes God waits on purpose just to see if we will be patient for him. You know, the story of Elijah, you know running running away and going 120 miles out of the way for God to tell him go back where you're supposed to be <laughs> how many of us have done that kind of event you know god i'm uh, things are just too tough here too bad i'm i'm looking at really bad things i'm going to go do something and unfortunately many times it's we run from where we're at and god says i don't know what you're doing here go back and David says, let Israel wait on the Lord from henceforth and forever. We oftentimes need just that patience with God. Just to sit back and say, God, I need to be patient. Teach me to be patient. And that takes care of Psalm 131. It only took me 16 minutes. (laughs) 132. 132. Lord, remember David in all his afflictions how he has sworn unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord and an habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it in Iphitah We found it in the fields of the woods. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into your rest, you, and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout with joy. For your servant David's sake, turn not away the face of, of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in uh, in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body will I set up your throne. If your children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priest with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. All right, so we're going to look at this one. This is David. And just to give you the history of this one, this is before the tabernacle the temple has been built and the the tabernacle has been moved to Jerusalem. And he's remembering back to a time when Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant for a period of time. So we're going to look at this. It says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. And I love this. David is really good for this. God, remember me. You know i've I've had a really hard time God remember me <laughs> and and there's not really anything wrong with that prayer when you think you've had a hard time God remember you know, just in case you've forgotten about me God remember me I think it's a little bit lack of faith but at the same time that is a pra- honest prayer before God God you know things are really tough you know i I've had a lot of problems, a lot of trials remember me job did the same thing to to God god uh, You know, kind of remember who I am. Give me an opportunity to talk to you. You, You've abandoned me. And that was a lot of what Job's arguments were God, you've abandoned, you seem to have abandoned me. And, you know, oftentimes we will have that opinion that somehow God has abandoned us. And it's just teaching us to rest in faith, you know, to understand that God has a plan, He has a time, and He has a plan. And oftentimes we will look at God or look to God and say, God, uh, you know, you've abandoned me. You've forgotten me. You've, you, your plan doesn't seem to be working, God. And so he's been reminded. And in verse 2 it says, How he swore unto the Lord and how he vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. You know, this is something that we look at. He made an oath. That's what it means to swear. He swore an oath. And he made a vow. And, you know, this is something we, we look at. A vow is a promise to God to do something. And in, in the Pentateuch, it talks about our vows being made to God. Once they were completed, it took an offering before God to complete the vow. You, you fulfilled your vow, and then you took an offering to God. And that uh, is in Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Talks about completing your vow. Paul, when he completed a vow in Acts, he said he went to Jerusalem and he went to the temple to make his offering because he had completed his vow. And God takes vows very seriously. In Ecclesiastes 5, 4, it says to complete your vow quickly, not, not slowly. God expects us to be people of our word and to fulfill our vows. And we talked about this actually in the How to Study the Bible. We talked about the vows and we looked up all the words um, about a vow and all the offering and, and activity that went with that. And David says, I have made a vow. And then he goes into what his vow was. Verse 3, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house or the tent of his house, nor go up to my bed, nor give sleep to my eyes, nor slumber to my eyes. Okay, he's promised not basically to rest. God, I'm not going to rest. And for how long? Until verse 5, until I have found a place for the Lord and an habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. God, I want you to have Home. He was looking around, and we know from, from other scriptures, he was in a palace. He had a nice home. He was in a palace and he looked, and where was God's tabernacle? A tent. Yeah, you know, it was a tent. And a matter of fact, it wasn't even in Jerusalem, it was at Shiloh. So anytime he wanted to worship God, he had to leave Jerusalem, go to Shiloh, and then come back. He's going, God, you know, I live in a I live in a house, I live in a palace. I have fine cedar on my walls and, you know, it's a beautiful place. And if you remember the story he told Nathan, I want to build God a temple. I want to build him a temple. And Nathan initially said, "Do whatever your heart desires." You know, great Great thing, you know, you, you, David, it sounds like a really good thing, you know, and he didn't even get to leave the palace before God says, go back and tell him he's not the one to build my house. You know, and the first question was, did I ever tell you I wanted a house? <laughs> you know, uh, I didn't even want a house. I don't really care, but you're not the man, David. Your son will get to build this house that you want to make because David was a man of war, shed too much blood, including innocent blood. And I think when God was talking about that, he was talking about Uriah's death, saying, you have a sin on your, on your plate that I'm not gonna let you be the one to build this, this beautiful building in your heart. But he says, God, I want to find you a place. I want to find a place for you to dwell. And David's heart was right. You know, he's looking around and saying, I've got, I've got all this, and God has a tent. You know, uh, how can the God of the universe have a tent while I have a beautiful house? And if we read this in Ezra and Nehemiah, they complained to the people because they were building houses, and they weren't building the temple that they were supposed to build. And they're going, how can you dwell in all these tents, all these beautiful houses, and we don't have a temple for God? You know, they kind of used the same argument David was using, except he was, they were using it against them, saying, you've built your beautiful houses. Get God's house built. And we see this whole idea that David had this great... Verse 6. Lo, we heard of it at Ephratah. We found it in the fields of the wood. You know, and this is... Ephratah is another name for Bethlehem. All right. So he says, we heard about it in Bethlehem. Why is Bethlehem precious? Because that is David's home. That is David's home. That is where he was born. That is where, where he was raised. And he says, we heard about the, the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple and, the, and this. And then he starts getting into a little bit of history. We found it in the fields. Now in 1 Samuel, we go back to 1 Samuel in, in chapter 6, Israel is battling with the Philistines. Eli is the priest right at this point in time, uh, one of the last last judges. And Eli's sons and the Ark of the Covenant go out to battle with the army to fight the Philistines. Eli's sons get killed. The army gets their butts kicked. (laughs) And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. Now, up to this point, the Ark of the Covenant was considered basically a talisman. If the Ark of the Covenant was out there. They couldn't win without the Well, they couldn't lose without it. They fought sometimes without it, but they, they figured that if the Ark of the Covenant was there, God was with them, and there was no way they were going to lose with the Ark of the Covenant there. And so they lose the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. The man comes back, reports it to Eli that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured and that his sons are sons are dead. Eli falls back off the wall and it says he was very fat and he broke his neck and he died. All right, Which is now going to lead us into later on Samuel taking over as as the judge of, of uh, the last judge of Israel. The next chapter in chapter 7 Uh, excuse me, chapter 4 was when this happened. Chapter 5 is the Philistines have trouble with God's Ark and the Covenant in there. We're getting to 6 and 7 later. Uh, They have all kinds of trouble because God is judging them. Uh, They put the Ark of the Covenant, the first place they put the Ark of the Covenant is in the Temple of Dagon. And it's a wonderful story about this. They come in the next morning and Dagon is falling flat down on his face. So they prop Dagon back up, strap him up, and the next morning they fall down and Dagon is flat on his face with the head cut off and the arms cut off and he's in many pieces. At that point, they decide that the Ark of the Covenant should not be in Dagon's (laughs) (laughs) temple. And they start sending it to all the major cities of Philistia. And in every city that the Ark of the Covenant goes in, the people get sick. Finally, they decide, well, we need to get this back to Israel, but we're not, we're not in friendly terms with Israel, so we can't just go under a flag of truce. so they put it on a cart with two milk cows to say, okay, wherever, wherever it goes is where it's supposed to be. Now, if you read that story closely, it says they're sending it with milk cows and the calves are mooing for their moms. Now, if you know anything about it, the the cows should be turning around and going back to their calves when their calves are making that much noise, but the calves, the milk cows, go into Israel. The first town in Israel that they get to, they take somehow manage to get it off without <laughs> getting into too much trouble. And over fifty thousand of them die when they open the open the ark and look inside it. They decide it's not the place for the ark to be, and they send it. <laughs> to another town, and it stays in that town for 20 years. And they're blessed and they're honored until, until Samuel gets a little older and says, we, we need it back here in Shiloh where it belongs. So this is what David's referring to. There was a time when that temple, when the tabernacle, when the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even in the tabernacle. It was out in somebody's house. You know, out in in somebody's house in the middle of nowhere, and they were being blessed. Okay, David's going to have a similar event later on in his life when they finally move it from Shiloh to Jerusalem, and again, they didn't follow the rules. (laughs) They're having this great big celebration, and they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. Instead of being carried by the Levites the way it was supposed to, and the cart hits a little rut and a man reaches out to touch to stabilize it because he's afraid it's gonna fall, and God struck him dead for touching the ark. And David in his fear left the ark in the man's field next door to the road and left it there. Uh, And then when they finally bring it in, for the temple into Jerusalem, they do it right. But that's years later. And either one of these times, it could be David referring back to, we remember when it was in places that it wasn't supposed to be. And the Ark of the Covenant eventually gets put into the Temple of Solomon. And after the Temple of Solomon was destroyed, the Ark disappears. The Ark has not been around Ever since the Temple of Solomon was destroyed, it was not in the temple that Jesus of Herod's day and jesus's day and they still don't know there's all kinds of rumors all kinds of stories about where it's at but uh, nobody knows for sure nobody knows it could be destroyed it could be hidden the, the, the most of the rumors and stories go that the the Levites or the priests took it away and hid it before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the city and the temple. But David is either one of these. He goes. He remembers. He remembers when the ark was someplace else, and whether it's slightly before because his his desire is to praise God is probably the one after he left it in the field of that person uh, when the man was struck dead. But he's also also remembering back to when it was gone and came back to Israel before Shiloh. The ark has had some interesting experiences (laughs) over the years. The ark was seen in heaven, either by Ezekiel or John, not Ezekiel, David, or John. Somebody saw that. Is it possible that that is the same ark that was in the temple? No. When Moses was given the instructions, he says, be careful to follow the directions. Why? because there's a heavenly temple that the earthly temple is a copy of right. God sits on the mercy seat above the ark of heaven which is not the mercy seat that he, that was in the temple it was a copy of what was up there so when they refer to when they refer to what was going on up there they are not talking about the earthly copy of the heavenly stuff well, I wonder because I know that it is sovereign. I know that Right. And it's not just a joke. It is what it says. Jesus is described as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world in heaven. So it's a good thing he takes away our tears and sorrows because I could not imagine looking at Jesus with the scars for eternity and not bringing tears for the cost of my being there. And there may still be tears of joy over the cost of this being, being there when we see Jesus, but it will be tears of joy, not tears of sorrow. I don't think we'll ever understand grace that we talked about this morning until we get there and see just how much God's Him out of the love we've On the insert we gave out last week, you know, we, I, you know the guy's last statement is, when you think you understand grace, you prove that you don't understand grace. Grace is so much deeper than anything we can even begin to imagine. Uh, You know, the acronym that people use, God's Riches at Christ's Expense, is just the beginning of the, the tip of it. But, you know, we have everything of heaven and God given to us because of his grace. It's an amazing thought of what God has given us. And when we start to under, when we even begin to start to understand God's grace, it should drive us to give grace to other people. And even then, we don't even begin to understand what that grace is because it just so far grace is so far beyond our comprehension. And my goal for everybody is to learn as much about grace as we possible can, and still know that we don't know anything about it. Anything that God is in, we have too small a picture of and i've said this many times how big is god no matter how big you picture god you're too small how strong is god no matter how strong you think he is you're too you're too you're too little you know, uh, how much does he love us we we can't even comprehend no matter what how much we think we he loves us how much grace does he give us we can't even begin to understand that grace because number 1 we don't fully understand how deep our sin is in our own life. Uh, Verse 7, We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. And this is kind of interesting in the Hebrew because his footstool is his footstool at his feet. Even though it's translated footstool, there's two words in there. Not only are we worshiping at his footstool, but we're worshiping at his feet in this statement. And, you know, we think about this, you know, God is so holy that especially the first time we see him in heaven, we're probably going to fall flat on our face because of the holiness and righteousness of God. And who knows how long it'll be before we can ever stand before God. Now, I love this song, I can only imagine, but I can tell you when we first see God, we're going to fall flat on our face because that's what everybody in the Bible does when they first see God. Not only when they first see God, if they see an angel... You know, the angels say, you know, they fall flat on their face to the angels who are just a reflection of God's holiness and righteousness. And they say, get up. People fall flat on their face before the angel that's a reflection of God and his perfection. Man, when we stand before God, it is going to be an awestruck time for us. that We are not going to even be able to comprehend standing before him. And really truly experiencing righteousness and holiness. You know, we get tastes of it on this world. There's times when I'm in worship and I get this taste of what heaven's going to be like and it's still just a small taste. You You get that experience of God and it's just so strong just for a couple seconds or a minute or two and yet as wonderful as that is, it's a taste. Of what heaven's going to be like. And you know, there's times when I just, you know, think about what a blessing it will be to be in heaven and worshiping God and not getting tired of worshiping Him. I think I could spend a year or two easily worshiping Him, and I'm sure in the spiritual realm it would be even longer that I'd be willing to worship Him. I would have no problem worshiping before the throne for a long period of time. Because that's the great blessing here on this world is just worshiping Him. We say, Arise, O Lord, into your rest and the ark of your strength. God, arise in your rest. You know, God has a great rest. He wants to draw us into rest. You know, in Hebrews, there's a great verse for this that God wants us to rest in our faith in Him. You know, how easy is life when we just rest? in God. Not struggling, not fighting, not not trying to make things happen, but just to be at rest with him and say, God, you are the one that's in charge. I just want to rest in you. And, you know, God gives us promises. He tells us what he's going to do. And just to be able to say, God, I trust in you. You And one of the statements I keep coming back to, Whenever we think that God doesn't know what he's talking in the Bible, go back to the Bible and rest in that the Bible is true. God, I don't know how everything's working out for good for me, but you've promised that it's going to work out, so I'm going to just rest in the fact that it's going to work out. You've promised that you're going to deliver me, God, so I'm just going to rest in that you're going to deliver me. God, you are sovereign and absolutely true, so I'm just going to rest that even when it looks like you're not sovereign and absolutely in control, you're sovereign and absolutely in control. You know, and I kind of tease him because it's an old joke, you know, the Bible is always right. If you think the you know, rule number one. And rule number two, if you don't think the Bible's right, refer back to rule number one. <laughs> you know, if we did more of that in our life, how much trials and tribulations would we get rid of? God, I just don't understand what's going on. Go back to the beginning. The Bible is right. Whether I understand it, whether I agree with it, whether I believe it, I just have to go back to it's Right. And the more that I go back to God is right, his word is right, he's got everything under control, if I keep going back to the beginnings, life becomes very easy for me. The times I get in trouble is when I try to figure things out. You know, God, I just don't understand how this is going to work. You know, God, I'm really smart. Come down here and tell me what you're doing. And God's looking at you like, uh, okay, I'm God. You're, you're the ant on the ground. I don't have to explain anything to you. Yeah, and he doesn't have to explain anything to us. All we have to do is have trust that he knows what he's doing and be able to just sit back and say, God, you're, you've got it. <laughs> I, I, I've got it, God. You're in charge. Verse 9 says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. You know, we, we are God's priests we're a royal priesthood, and we are clothed in righteousness. We're in the righteousness of Christ. That we are clothed in righteousness. And David said, let your priest be clothed in righteousness. And he's actually thinking about the priest in his day. So many of them were not righteous. They were, they were human, and he knew that. And many of them were not following God because how did you become a priest in the, in, in the Jewish world? You were born a child of Aaron. And that made you a priest. You didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. Probably you didn't care. Sometimes you didn't work for it. You were just a priest. And to serve in the temple, later in the temple, was a Levite. How did you get permission to serve in the temple? You were born into it. If you were a Judite, a Judah or or Benjamite, and you wanted to serve in the temple, you couldn't. Now you could dwell in the temple and all that stuff like Simeon and, and uh, those guys when Jesus was born, but they were not workers in the temple. They just hang, hung out with God as much as possible. And David's saying, let your servants be clothed in righteousness, but I think it's kind of prophetic because he's looking at us, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And your saints shout for joy. You know, and I love this, shout for joy. How many of God's saints... Especially in our day and age, you know, it's kind of interesting sometimes when you go to a church and everybody looks like they've been eating lemons. Mm -hmm. Nobody smiles. Nobody's happy to be in in fellowship with God. And heaven help you if you were to sing a song that was exciting and jumped up and down and and all of that. And God says, shout for joy. Why should we shout for joy? He's given us everything. You know, I love being a follower of God and watching what God does and the joy that He gives us, the peace that passes understanding, the, all that He gives us. And David says, "Shout for joy!" It says, "For your servant David's sake, turn not away your face away the face of your anointed." You know, for my sake, God, you made me a promise. What was the promise? We're going to learn a little later that you know His seed was going to la- you know, reign forever. It for your servant's sake, turn not away the face of your anointed. Anointed is Messiah. Do not let the Messiah's face turn away from me. He understood. You know, the anointed one, Messiah. Jesus' title, title that he has is, in Greek, it's Christ, anointed one. You know, which if we were to read it in Hebrew, Jesus, Messiah. <laughs> You know, it would be his title. He's the Anointed One, and he says, David says, don't don't turn your face away from me, God, don't turn it away. And then in verse 11, he gives him the title that what he goes. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn away from it. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. David had a promise that his seed would rule forever. And we understand that his David's direct lineages have not ruled for a long time. All right. Uh, Babylon conquered the city, and his children stopped reigning Jerusalem. Even when Jesus came to this world as a son of David, able to take the throne, King Herod was there. Now King Herod wasn't even a Jew. And that was one of the problems that the Jewish people had with him is that they were being run by a king who wasn't even a Jew. And they resented it, which was a lot of the problems they had. They didn't like Caesar being in charge of them, and they really didn't like a king who wasn't the son of David sitting on a throne. And David's reminding God, God, you made me a promise. I'm expecting you to fulfill it. When God makes promises, we can expect him to fulfill them. When we read the word and he says he's going to do something, we can know that he's going to do it. That he will get us out of every trouble. He plans to bless us. He's got great, great plans for us. All things work together for good. You know, we can remind. Sometimes we can remind God. And I've told you, when things bad seem to be bad, sometimes all my prayer is, God, I don't understand it. I don't know how it's going to work, but... You promise that it's going to be for good, so I'm just going to hang on to that promise, and I'm kind of reminding you, God, you said it's for good, maybe you'll show me why it's for good. Oftentimes we want to kind of remind God, you know God, i'm I'm trusting you. Being able to give him back his own words is not being hopefully not being somebody saying, oh, God, you're you're not doing your, but God, I'm trusting in your word. You've made a promise, I expect it to be kept, and I'm going to just say, God, I'm leaning and trusting in that truth. David continues his, his promise. If your children will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon your, your throne forevermore. And this is God's words. And I love this one little statement in there. It says, if your children will keep the, my covenant and my testimony, that I shall teach them. You know that God wants to teach us? He wants to teach us in our, in our own studies, now, how does he teach children? Well, he starts out with good, godly parents teaching their children. Then pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers will teach them. But, you know, ultimately God says, if they won't listen to these others, he goes, I will teach them. You know, How many times have you been taught by God something? You know, usually the hard way. <laughs> you know, if you won't listen to your parents, if you won't get into God's word yourself, if you won't listen to, your, to the I pastor understand. and the teachers... God will make sure that we learn. And we don't want to learn the hard way. <laughs> you know, well, we shouldn't want to learn the hard way. Usually we, we, by our actions, kind of tell God we want to learn the hard way. You know, God, I'm just not learning my lessons. Come beat me with a stick for a little bit more while I, while I learn this lesson. And then he'll send our parents or our teachers, and they'll give us a lesson, and hopefully we'll learn, or sometimes we just have to learn the hard way. He says, I shall teach your children. And your children shall sit on your throne forevermore. Now, the one who made it, made the completion on that is Jesus, because Jesus is, you know, kind of the mo- very interesting thing. Jesus is Messiah. He is God, but he's also a child of David. You know, it's one of those, one of those ideas that, you know, my grandpa's my own, you know, no. is my, my own grandkid or something, you know, and he got Jesus who's, before david and yet he's born after david as one of his children and david recognizes who he is and we see this and it says verse 13 for the lord hath chosen zion he has desired it for his habitation you know zion is jerusalem as we've talked about many times especially in the psalms god desires jerusalem for whatever reason you know, and he says he has a desire. He craves it for his habitation. David's thinking of the temple. You know, David at this time is thinking of the temple. He's going to put the temple in Jerusalem that God can live in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. But then we also see that in the new heaven and new earth, well, let's go back. During the millennial kingdom, he reigns, Jesus reigns from Jerusalem. Reigns the whole world from Jerusalem, just as he said he would. In the new heaven and earth, God brings down a heavenly Jerusalem and reigns from Jerusalem forever. Forever. On this world. And I don't fully understand what heaven is and what, what the earthly rule is and how much access we'll have to heaven and how much access we'll have to this world. But you know, the scriptures indicate that in the new heaven and new earth, we will dwell on this earth as our primary residence. Then when we want to go see the Father, we'll go up to the temple of heaven probably and worship him all the way up in heaven. But our daily day life will be on the world. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all these books talk about the commerce and everything that's going on between Jerusalem and a different life than most of what we ever think about for, for eternity. And he says, you desire, Zion. You desire it. This is my rest forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. And God says, I will dwell in Jerusalem. He starts with the temple of Solomon where he inhabits the temple. And we, we read about this. They finish the temple. And if you read the story of Solomon's dedication, the Shekinah glory of God falls on the temple. And everybody gets away from it because God says for the voice, I will choose to dwell here. And becomes a very special place for him. And this will be what's going to happen for all of eternity. God dwells on Jerusalem. And it says this is where his rest is. He's going to rest there forever, which is the new Jerusalem, new heaven and earth, but you know, until then it'll is his time verse 15 i will abundantly bless her provision i will satisfy her poor with bread and this abundantly is bless so it really says i will bless bless her provisions and will satisfy her poor with bread now we haven't seen all of this yet again this will be during the millennial kingdom where the where he will take care there won't be any poor in the in the millennial kingdom and there will not be poor in the new heaven and the new earth and he says I will abundantly or bless bless her you know and you know God is looking to bless us we've talked about this so many times God wants to bless his children it's usually us who keeps him from blessing us the way he wants to you know God I just don't know that you want to do this so I'm gonna make life really difficult And you know, I've I've said this over and over again. If we want to do things on our own, God will say, okay, you go ahead and do what you want. And when you're done making a mess out of everything and you come back to me, I will give you what I wanted to give you in the first place. And the prodigal son is one of those great examples. The prodigal tells his father, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now. And runs off and wastes his money. And when he comes back, the father's watching for him and says, oh, you're back here. I'm going to, you know, you know, Godfather. I just want to be, nope, he's going to, you're my son. I'm going to give you, I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to clean you up. And by the way, we're going to have a great big party for you. You were dead and now you're alive. God wants to give us blessings that we don't deserve. Too many times we get this idea of somehow I've got to repent enough or beat myself up enough, and then maybe after I'm done doing all my penance and, you know, crawling crawling across the Sahara Desert on my knees to, to show God how sorry I am, maybe he might forgive me. And God's saying, just get over here. <laughs> and, you know, if we think about this, for the people who have children, you know, how much do you see children have to repent before you're really ready to love them? Especially when they're young. you know. How many, you know, they do something bad. How many, you know, how many chores do they have to do before you're going to say, I love you? It might be a little harder when they're an adult and they really have gotten under your skin. But, you know, even then, if you, if you have a child that's turned completely away from God and they come back to God, are you going to tell them, well, I just don't believe you turned to God. Go, go away. And when you really proved it to me, and we're going to go, I am so happy that you've turned back to God and you've re- repented and, you've, you know, and I love you. I'm proud of what you're doing. We're proud of our children. We're, we're, we want to see what's best for them. We're God's children. He wants what's best for us. And when we repent and we turn back to him, he's not going to say, well, you go do some things, you, know, you go do some chores, and when you've done enough chores, I'll let you come up in, and talk to me. No. If we can love our children that much, God is going to love us more than we can love our kids. And we've really got to understand God wants to bless us. Wants to. And yet, we we struggle with this. We all struggle with this. God, I know how awful I am. I know all the sins I've committed. I don't know how you could love me. Because I wouldn't love me. And God says, well, I have more love and more grace than you do. Come and Come on up here and let me teach you how to love and give grace. Because what we need to learn to do is be able to give ourselves love, grace, and forgiveness as much as we need to give others love, grace, and forgiveness. And very important for us to be able to do that. Learn to apply what we are expecting to give to others to ourselves because God gives it to us. Verse 16, I will also clothe her priest with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. You know, again, here we go. I'm going to take my priest in the, in the heaven where God rests. He's going to take his priest. And who is his priest for salvation? Us. He goes, I am going to clothe my priest with salvation. They don't deserve it, and I'm going to give it to them. You know, and this is wonderful. And then he says, and her saints shall shout aloud with joy. And this shout is that loud ringing cry. So many Christians don't seem to want to be able to do for God. They'll go to the football game or the baseball game or the basketball and shout for joy because their team made a point. We need to be able to do that with God. Amen. Yeah. I would love it if we had service and we sang and we praised God so loud that they heard it all the way up at the top of the mountain. <laughs> Verse 17. There I will make the horn of David to bud and have ordained a lamp for my anointed. Yeah. There I have made the horn of David his strength, his power, to bud, and have anointed a lamp for mine anointed again Messiah. You know, David's rod is going to bud and be proven that he is the one who's given birth to the king, and Jesus is that one that is going to be that bud and rule for eternity. And the last one, his enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Jesus' enemies will be taken down, always. His body's enemies will be taken down. And he will always flourish. He will shine. He will blossom. The amazing thing is he does it through us so often that he shines and he grows. But his enemies will be punished, will be put to shame. And David so many times would say, God, why, why are the heathen... Looking like everything's going right, and God's answer was always, "I haven't. Ju- I have. I'm not done judging yet. I am not done. When God judges people, they will know that He's judged them. And you know, one of the things we've said so often: ultimately, they've got the white throne judgment that they're going to stand before and be completely judged. But God judges them even on this world, and even though we don't recognize it. Most of these people that we think have all these blessings and all their life put together, if you really get to know them, they don't have their life together. You know, we look at them, they've got the mansion on the hillside, and the 20 cars in the garage, and the servants, and you know, the pool, and everything looks like they've got everything in the world, and they're empty. And they know that they're empty. They've got everything that everybody thinks makes you successful that they thought would make them successful, and they're empty. And God is saying, I am judging. And we may not know them unless you really get to know them. You don't know that they're empty. And we do have everything because we have peace. We have rest. And we need to be able to recognize that just because somebody looks like they have everything and that they're being blessed and they're not godly we will see at the very least in heaven when god shows them everything that they don't have we will see that they didn't have everything we will see that ultimately they're headed to hell you know they may have even if they had everything on this world and we know that they don't and how do we know that they don't all we got to do is look at the society pages and the and all the newspapers and it talks about their drunken their drunken escapades, their suicide attempts—you know, their their lack of joy—is being revealed, and say, oh, you know, they didn't have everything. This is what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. He says it's all vanity. And if it had been anybody but Solomon that told us that there's nothing but vanity and wealth, and nothing of vanity and accomplishment, nothing in vanity and all these and anything that people want. You would go, okay, you know, this is, you know, Solomon, the richest man in the world, says there's, n- there's no joy in wealth. An extreme architect and builds all these beautiful buildings and said there's no joy in success. Does public works and builds parks and, and everything for people. And he goes, there's no joy in serving others without God. Because he left God behind. Because he left God behind. He goes, I've gathered all this alcohol and, 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 and buried myself in alcohol and drugs. There's no joy there. You know, I've had all the women I could possibly want. There's no joy there. And because he's been everything to the extreme, he can say it's all vanity. Without God, it's all empty. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to, to read your word, to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, teach us to rest in who you are and be able to just understand that you want to bless us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.